looked as though the intelligence test came at the end <laughs> there. We are reading in the Old Testament Scriptures this morning in the book of Job, chapter 16, and if you're using a church Bible, it's on page 521, Job chapter 16, page 521, if you're using a church Bible, um, and it'd be helpful if you have a Bible or a phone or an iPad or any kind of pad, if you turn to the passage uh, by way of um, warning, uh, as we're supposed to give warnings these days, this actually is one of the most terrible chapters in the Bible. Uh, Job is speaking to God, and the chapter is full of almost violent accusations against him. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things, and he now refers to his three friends who have come to comfort him, miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged, and if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company, and He has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in His wrath and hated me. He has gnashed His teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness, although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. 
my friends scorn me and my eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. There's a very famous mathematician who became a philosopher uh, last century, Alfred North Whitehead, uh, who wrote in one of his books something that I found interesting in itself and even more interesting because I think there is a kind of parallel to it in the Bible. What he wrote was this, that you can sum up the entire history of Western philosophy by saying it's a series of footnotes to Plato. An interesting statement in itself if you are in the minority who happen to be interested in philosophy. It's a parallel statement that Whitehead's statement prompted in my own mind that I think is even more interesting for us as Christians. If you want to sum up the message of the Bible, then it is a series of footnotes to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of hope and ultimately salvation that we find in the Bible. It is that great statement that God makes that He would put enmity between the seed of the serpent who has lured the man and the woman into sin. He would set up enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and ultimately that enmity would come to a crisis in a conflict between one particular seed of the woman and the serpent himself. In that sense, about every book in the Bible, in a way about every section of the Bible, you can ask this question, where does this fit into that big picture? What kind of footnote is this passage to that promise that God gives in Genesis 3.15? And actually, in the case of most books and many passages, you will find that that situation of conflict, cosmic conflict between the powers of darkness and the kingdom of God, between Satan on the one hand and Christ on the other hand, between Babylon and Jerusalem, you will find that that conflict emerges in many different ways. And it is actually the key to the whole book of Job. You'll remember the story. Job is a righteous man, a faithful man who trusts in God. And at the beginning of the book, we are given this background scene, this heavenly scene in which Satan challenges God in these terms. The only reason Job trusts you is because you've made him prosper. If he ceases to prosper, I bet you that he will turn away from you. And God sovereignly in this drama gives Satan permission to test, to try Job, and he does this in the most monstrous fashion. 
Job loses his children. He loses his prosperity. His body is afflicted. Eventually, his wife says to him, Job, the best thing for you to do is to curse God and die. And three of his friends hear that he is in trouble, the very remarkable men. They come and do what most of us would find very difficult to do. They sit down beside him in the dust, and they say absolutely nothing to him for a whole week. Indeed, they say nothing to him until he starts speaking. And as he starts speaking, they bring to him their explanations as to why he is suffering. There is only one explanation. This terrible suffering must be the result of his sin. They get increasingly angry with Job as he responds to them and says, this suffering is not because of my sin. And again and again, sometimes in expressions of the most lofty and eloquent theology to be found anywhere in Scripture, descriptions of God that are overwhelming in their majesty, beauty, and truth. But then when they come to make application and say, Job, the only reason you are suffering is because in some way you are denying you must have sinned. And eventually, as the narrative goes on and those three friends come again and again to him, Job here in chapter 6 breaks out in words of powerful exasperation. Your words, he says to them in verse 3, are as empty as wind. And for all that you have done in coming and sitting with me in the dust, in the silence, you have turned out, he says, to be absolutely miserable comforters. And prompted by those words, he then moves on to a spine-chilling series of accusations and condemnations of what God is doing to him. And of course, he doesn't know, as we know, this is a, this is a drama, and we have, seen the, we have seen a scene that precedes this drama to which Job has had no access we know that this has not happened to Job because he has sinned. This has actually happened to Job for almost the reverse reason. This has happened to Job because Job has not sinned. This is, this in a way, is not so much just about Job. This is about the honor and glory of God. This is about the question, will a man trust God for himself because of who he is? And Satan says, no. And God says, yes. I am able to sustain a man when he has lost everything because he trusts me. So, it's often said that this is a book about suffering, and it is indeed at one level a book about suffering. But at another level, it's about something much more profound something much more cosmic. 
It's about this conflict between the power of darkness and the kingdom of God, between the glory of God and the enmity of Satan, between God's ability to keep His people no matter what, and the devil's desire to destroy the enjoyment that God's people have of His fellowship and His presence. And while it seems to me highly unlikely that any of us, certainly not many of us, would come to these excruciating experiences, although some of us may have had a taste of it, this is, this is also the story of our lives. This is the context in which our lives are set, the conflict of good and evil, the context of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, the context of the power of God and the power of Satan, the context of our enjoyment of God as our Lord, our Savior, our friend, or the destruction of that enjoyment by the evil one who has set his heart on destroying the kingdom and the people of God. And this chapter unfolds rather obviously and very simply in three stages. It begins in verses 1 through 5 with Job's antagonism towards his friends. You'll notice the, 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 the powerful use of the first-person singular verbs. He, he has been listening to their words of comfort, but their words of comfort have actually hurt him and confused him. And he says, if, if, if you were in, in my shoes, I could speak as you do, and I could join words together, and I could shake my head at you, but I would also strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. And he speaks forcefully like this, on the one hand, because he has seen the devotion of his friends, which is in a way unspeakable, but also because he has seen the doctrine of his friends misapplied. And this is, this is so interesting and telling, isn't it? They have this magnificent doctrine of God, and yet they are actually insensitive to what God is doing. They have no emotional intelligence, spiritually speaking, and if you read through these chapters, you will find that the poetry is eloquent, that the, the descriptions of God are sometimes profoundly moving. Many of the passages will remind you of passages in the Psalms that speak about the majesty, the magnificence, the glory of God, His sovereignty over all things. And yet, here are men who, who know all these things, and yet, in a way, they've taken them out of context, haven't they? They're, they're, not, they're not thinking about God within the context of the spiritual conflict in which Job is engaged. They're not able to pull back the curtain and to recognize that perhaps there is a, a more sinister hand at work here because what is happening to this saint of God, this child of God, is that Satan is seeking to destroy his 
enjoyment of God, his fellowship with God, his trust in God. And I think the reason for this becomes very clear. And as the passage moves on in verses 6 through 17, this antagonism towards his friends, the the way he lets his guard down, then opens up his heart to what he's begun to feel about God, and he moves from antagonism towards his friends to accusations against God. And this is the particularly painful part of this chapter to read. Uh, He has shriveled me up. He has torn me in his wrath. He has given me up to the ungodly. I was at ease, and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I mean, those are, those are words of deep honesty drawn out of his mouth because of what he has gone through. And yet they're not true. They're in the infallible Word of God, but they're not true. Well, we know there are lots of things in the infallible Word of God, infallibly recorded, that are not true. We know that when Satan speaks, he is a liar. So, his words are not true, even although they are infallibly recorded. And the point here is, this is an infallible record of Job's words as part of God's Word, but Job's words are not true. Job's friends had misunderstood God, and Job is also misunderstanding God. And he's guilty of confusion, isn't he? And it's kind of evident. He's guilty, first of all, of a confusion of identity. He doesn't know this, but we know this because we know this book from the beginning. We know it's not God who is doing these things to him, don't we? That's what the first two chapters tell us. It's not God who is doing these things to him albeit God has permitted this to happen to him. It's Satan who's doing this to him in order to destroy his friendship with God. And so, when Job says these things, he's engaging in a confusion of identity. He says, surely now God has worn me out, but we know it's not God who has worn him out. He says, he has torn me in his wrath and hated me, but we know that's not true. In verses 11 and 12, God gives me up to the ungodly, but we know God hasn't given him up. We know it's not God who broke him apart and seized him by the neck and set him up as his target, who slashed open his kidneys and didn't spare and poured out his gall on the ground and broke him with breach upon breach and ran upon him like a warrior. As spectators, we know that Job is here 
engaging in a confusion of identity. That's one of the reasons why right at the end of the Bible we're told that Satan is the deceiver of the brethren. And he's been, he's been doing this from the very beginning, a confusion of identity that's related to a confusion of character. And you see that in the way in which he thinks about God as his accuser seeking to destroy him. Of course, there are times when God convicts us of our sin, but it's not to destroy us. It's to bring us to repentance and to forgiveness and to comfort. It's not God who is the accuser of the brothers. It's Satan. And in verses 9 to 11, the way he describes God as as his adversary, his enemy. But we know from the Scriptures it's not God who is the adversary, the enemy of his people. It's Satan who is his adversary. It's Satan, the adversary, who goes about, says Peter, seeking somebody to devour. And this is exactly what Job is experiencing without understanding the real source of it. And so, he's not only engaging here in a confusion of identity, he's engaging in a confusion of character. And that's why I say this goes back to Genesis chapter 3, because that's what Satan sought to do in Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? It's exactly what he sought to do. Has God placed you in this marvelous garden with all these beautiful trees, all these delicious-looking fruit, and said you're not having any of them? You see what he's doing? He is seeking to twist pervert, confuse the character of God in the eyes of His people so that they will be like your children when you refuse them one thing because it's not good for them, and they say, you never give me anything. You never let me do anything. And this is what happened in the Garden of Eden. And this is the most ferocious illustration of that probably in the whole of the Bible. This is your God, you see. This is what He's like. This is what Satan is, as it were, injecting into this situation, into Job's mind. And he's constantly resisting it until he he bursts out here. Perhaps the best parallel in the book of Psalms is in Psalm 102, verse 10, where the psalmist says, you you lifted me up, you exalted me, and then you threw me away. And that's what Job feels. You lifted me up. He truly was exalted. And now he's saying to God, you've thrown me away, discarded me, you're attacking me. And it's just as he comes to the nadir, to the lowest point, to the darkest point here, and says, my face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness. He cannot see the way through. And you notice these words in verse 19, just a little glimmer of hope in the middle of the darkness, even now, even now even in the midst of this situation, even now. And these closing verses are, in a way, 
Job beginning to feel towards the light. It's not the first time this has happened. Another passage earlier on in Job chapter 9, he's in the midst of similar crisis of emotions, and just out of, out of nowhere, he suddenly says, if it isn't God, who then is it? And you see, if you were in one of these, well, even in a modern theater, and you were watching this drama, and you had seen the opening act, and you understood what was really happening, but neither his friends nor he himself understood, and you heard him say from the stage, if it's not God, who then is it? Then in the, the emotion of this book, I think some of us would stand up in our chairs and shout out to the stage, Job, it's not God that's doing this to you. It's Satan that's doing this to you. Trust me, I've seen it. I've heard it. It's not God. He's not like this. And you see, Job reaches out and almost touches the answer. Perhaps it's not God. But if it's not God, then who is it? And you'll notice what happens in these closing verses. He, he moves from his antagonism against his friends and his accusations against God to begin to feel after the answer to his need in verses 18 to 21. O earth, cover not my blood. Let my cry find no resting place. And he sees he needs two things. He says in verse 18, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. You want, where on earth did that come from? Where on earth did that insight come from? And then he goes on to say, Oh, he says, my friends scorn me, my eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God, as a son of man does with his neighbor. You see, see what he's feeling after? He's feeling after somebody who will bear witness to him, somebody who will confess him, and he's looking for somebody who will intercede for him. He's looking for a witness, and he's looking for an advocate. Remember how Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. Remember how the Apostle Paul teaches us that Christ not only died for us, but He rose for us, that He is even at the right hand of God for us, and that He is making intercession for us. Remember how Peter says, you know, the Old Testament prophets and saints, they, they had the sense that God had given them a promise, a promise of a Savior, and they felt after it. They were like men in a darkened room that was full of furniture, and they, they felt the furniture and, and wondered, what is this? What does it look like? They didn't know who exactly he was who would come. They didn't know when he would come. They had glimmers of what he would be like, what he would experience. But if you ask them, who is he? 
they would have to say, I don't know, it's still dark, I can't see, I can only feel. I'm like a man in a darkened room, and I feel that a Savior is there, but I can't tell you everything about Him except that He will answer my needs. And it's something like that, it seems to me, that is happening here to Job. We don't know exactly where he belongs to the story of biblical history, but at least he belongs within the context of Genesis 3.15, that there would come a Savior who would crush the head of the serpent, whose own heel would be crushed in the process of his victory, and who would provide what his people needed, would save them, would redeem them, would rescue them. And here is the prophet Job, and he's, he's, it's as though momentarily a light had been switched on, and he saw, he saw exactly what he needed, and he believed that God would provide exactly what he needed. Somebody who would say, in heaven, he's mine. He belongs to me. Somebody who would pray the way Jesus prays in John 17, Father, I don't ask you that you would take them out of this world, but I pray you would keep them from the evil one in this world. I need somebody who would just hold on to me there. And I need somebody there who will intercede for me, who will be my advocate and who will save me. And of course, the wonderful thing for us as we read this, I say again, terrible passage, it's a terrible passage to read, is that we know not only the beginning of the book of Job, but we know the end of the Bible. We are able to hear Job not only in the context of what he doesn't understand, but in the light of what he was feeling after because we have this promise from God that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, tribulation, distress, persecution, peril, famine, nakedness, sword. You'd almost wonder if, if Paul was thinking about Job and what he experienced, and within that context was able to say, we know that this is true because the Father didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, and that Christ has died for us, has risen for us, ascended for us, is at the right hand of the Father for us, and there He ever lives to make intercession for us. That's a great promise, isn't it? Remember, uh, pilgrim and hopeful, taking the wrong way and ending up in giant despair's castle in Pilgrim's Progress. And there on Saturday night, as they're, as they're desolate, they, they, they are driven almost to despair by giant despair. And Christian, out of the blue, says, what are we going to do? The life we now live is miserable. For my part, I know not whether it's best to live thus or to die out of my own hand. 
And then he actually quotes from the book of Job. Amazingly. Then Christian says, my soul chooses strangling rather than life. And then he cries out, what a fool to lie in this stinking dungeon when I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open every lock in doubting castle. You know what Calvin says about this? Satan seeks to drive the saint to madness by despair. And here, for a moment of relief, Job is looking out and looking up and getting a glimmer that there is a Savior who will confess Him before the Father's throne and who will intercede for Him in His need. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the wrong within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. That's what we sing, isn't it? For me, the sinless Savior died. My guilty soul is counted free, and God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. This may be very far removed from your experience today, but it may be your experience this time next year, or the experience of somebody you know. And we need to understand that our lives are set within this cosmic frame of reference. As believers, we are caught up in a a profound and violent conflict in which because Satan knows he cannot destroy us who are Christ's, he will do everything in his power to destroy our enjoyment of Christ. And that's why we need to look up and see that there is someone at the right hand of God to see by faith through the clouds that engulf us, the storms that surround us, and say, He is mine, as an echo of Him saying, You are mine. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the way in which it touches the heights and the depths of our emotions and affections speaks to us in prose and poetry and proverb and parable. We thank You that it also warns us about the lies of the devil, that You do not love us, that we experience dark days because You hate us. We pray, Father, that the light of Your Word will illumine our path and that we who have trusted in Jesus Christ and have this key that unlocks every dungeon door that would keep us in despair, that He has died for us and been raised for us, and that if You have given Him for us, You will withhold no good thing from us 
but bring us at the last into your heavenly kingdom to see your glory, to be made like you, and to rejoice forever in a sin and suffering-free world. Thank you for this hope. Thank you for this promise. Thank you for this Savior. Hear us. Help any of us who are in distress and in difficulties and in darkness. For the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.